Vimes looked up at the entrance of the candle factory. He could dimly see two cressets burning on either side of a shield. Look at that, will you, he said. Paint not dry, and he flaunts the thing for all the world to see. What's that, sir? said Detritus. His damn coat of arms. Detritus looked up. Why's it got a lighted fish on it? he said. In heraldry, that's a poisson, said Vimes bitterly, and it's supposed to be a lamp. A lamp? "'Made out of a poisson,' said Detritus. "'Well, there's a thing.' "'At least he's got the motto in proper language,' said Sergeant Colon. "'Instead of all the old-fashioned stuff no one understands, "'art brought forth the candle. "'That, Sergeant Detritus, is a pun, or play on words, "'cause his name is Arthur, see?' "'Vimes stood between the two sergeants "'and felt a hole open up in his head. "'Damn,' he said. "'Damn, damn, damn!' He showed it to me. Dumb plodder Vimes, he won't notice. Oh, yes, and he was right. It's not that good, said Colon. I mean, you've got to know that Mr. Carey's first name is Arthur. Shut up, Fred, snapped Vimes. Shut up right now, sir. The arrogance of... Who's that? A figure darted out of the building, glanced around hurriedly, and scurried along the street. "'That's Carrie, said Vimes. He didn't even shout after him, but went from a standing start to a full run. The fleeing figure dodged between the occasional straying sheep or pig and didn't have a bad turn of speed, but Vimes was powered by sheer anger and was only yards away when Carrie ducked into an alleyway. Vimes skidded to a halt and grabbed at the wall. He'd seen the shape of a crossbow, and one of the things you learned in the watch, that is, one of the things which hopefully you'd have a chance to learn, was that it was a very stupid thing indeed to follow someone with a crossbow into a dark alley where you'd be outlined against any light there was. "'I know it's you, Carrie,' he shouted. "'I've got a crossbow!' "'You can only fire it once.' "'I want to turn King's evidence!' "'Guess again!' Carrie lowered his voice. They just said I could get the damn golem to do it. I didn't think anyone was going to get hurt. Right, right, said Vimes. You made poisoned candles because they gave a better light, I expect. You know what I mean. They told me it would be all right and... Which they would they be? They said no one would ever find out. Really? Look, look, they said they could... The voice paused and took on that wheedling tone the blunt-witted use when they're trying to sound sharp. If I tell you everything, you'll let me go, right? The two sergeants had caught up. Vimes pulled Detritus towards him, although in fact he ended up pulling himself towards Detritus. Go round the corner and see he doesn't come out of the alley the other way, he whispered. The troll nodded. What's it you want to tell me, Mr. Carey? said Vimes to the darkness in the alley. Have we got a bargain? What? A bargain! No, we damn well haven't got a bargain, Mr. Carey. I'm not a tradesman. But I'll tell you something, Mr. Carey. They betrayed you. There was a silence from the darkness, and then a sound like a sigh. Behind Vimes, Sergeant Colon stamped his feet on the cobbles to keep warm. You can't stay in there all night, Mr. Carey, said Vimes. There was another sound, a leathery sound. Vimes glanced up into the coils of fog. Something's not right, he said. Come on. He ran into the alley. Sergeant Colon followed on the basis that it was fine to run into an alley containing an armed man, provided you were behind someone else. A shape loomed at them. Detritus? Yes, sir. Where did he go? There are no doors in the alley. Then his eyes grew more accustomed to the gloom. He saw a huddled outline at the foot of a wall, and his foot nudged a crossbow. 
Mr. Carey? He knelt down and lit a match. Oh, nasty, said Sergeant Colon. Something's broken his neck. Dead, is he? said Detritus. You want I should draw a chalk outline round him? I don't think we need bother, Sergeant. It's no bother. I've got the chalk right here. Vimes looked up. Fog filled the alley, but there were no ladders, no handy low roofs. Let's get out of here, he said. Angua faced the king. She resisted a terrible urge to change. Even a werewolf's jaws probably wouldn't have any effect on the thing. It didn't have a jugular. She daren't look away. The king moved uncertainly with little jerks and twitches that in a human would suggest madness. Its arms moved fast but erratically, as if signals that were being sent were not arriving properly. And Dorfel's attack had left it damaged. Every time it moved, red light shone from dozens of new cracks. "'You're cracking up!' she shouted. "'The oven wasn't right for pottery!' The king lunged at her. She dodged and heard its hand slice through a rack of candles. "'You're cranky! You're baked like a loaf! You're half-baked!' She drew her sword. She didn't usually have much use for it. She found a smile would invariably do the trick. A hand sliced the top off the blade. She stared at the sheared metal in horror and then somersaulted back as another blow hummed past her face. Her foot rolled on a candle and she fell heavily, but with enough presence of mind to roll before a foot stamped down. "'Where have you gone?' she yelled. "'Can you get it to move a little closer to the doors, please?' said a voice from the darkness on high. Carrot crawled out along the rickety structure that supported the production line. "'Carrot! Almost there!' The king grabbed at her leg. She lashed out with her foot and caught it on the knee. To her amazement, she made it crack. But the fire below was still there. The pieces of pottery seemed to float on it. No matter what anyone did, the golem could keep going, even if it were just a cloud of dust held together. "'Ah, right,' said Carrot, and dropped off the gantry. He landed on the king's back, flung one arm around its neck, and began to pound on its head with the hilt of his sword. It staggered and tried to reach up to pull him off. "'Got to get the words out!' Carrot shouted as the arms flailed at him. "'It's the only way!' The king staggered forward and hit a stack of boxes which burst and rained candles over the floor. Carrot grabbed its ears and tried to twist. Angua heard him saying, "'You have the right to a lawyer?' Carrot, don't bother with its damn rights. You have the right to just give it the last ones. There was a commotion in the gaping doorway and Vimes ran in, sword drawn. Oh, gods. Sergeant Detritus. Detritus appeared behind him. Sir. Crossbow bolt through the head, if you please. If you say so, sir. It's head, Sergeant. Mine is fine. Carrot, get down off the thing. Can't get its head off, sir. We'll try six feet of cold steel in the ear just as soon as you let the damn thing go. Carrot steadied himself on the king's shoulders, tried to judge his moment as the thing staggered around and leapt. He landed awkwardly on a sliding heap of candles. His leg buckled under him and he tumbled over until he was stopped by the inert shell that had been dorful. Hey, look this way, mister, said Detritus. The king turned. Vimes didn't catch everything that happened next because it all happened so quickly. He was merely aware of the rush of air and the gloink of the rebounding bolt mingling with the wooden juddering noise as it buried itself in the doorframe behind him. And the golem was crouching down by Carrot, who was trying to squirm out of the way. It raised a fist and brought it down. Vimes didn't even see Dorfel's arm move, but there it was, there, suddenly gripping the king's wrist. Tiny stars of light went nova in Dorfel's eyes. 
As the king jerked back in surprise, Dorfel held on and levered himself up on what remained of his legs. As he came up, so did his fist. Time slowed. Nothing moved in the whole universe but Dorfel's fist. It swung like a planet, without any apparent speed, but with a drifting unstoppability. And then the king's expression changed. Just before the fist landed, it smiled. The golem's head exploded. Vimes recalled it in slow motion, one long second of floating pottery. And words, scraps of paper flew out, dozens, scores of them, tumbling gently to the floor. Slowly, peacefully, the king hit the floor. The red light died, the cracks opened, and then there were just pieces. Dorful collapsed on top of them. Angua and Vimes reached Carrot together. He came alive, said Carrot, struggling up. That thing was going to kill me, and Dorful came alive. But that thing had smashed the words out of his head. A golem has to have the words. They gave their own golem too many, I can see that, said Vimes. He picked up some of the coils of paper. Create peace and justice for all. Rule us wisely. Teach us freedom. Lead us to... Poor devil, he thought. Let's get you home. That hand needs treating, said Angua. Listen, will you, said Carrot. He's alive! Vimes knelt down by Dorful. The broken clay skull looked as empty as yesterday's breakfast egg, but there was still a pinpoint of light in each eye socket. <sighs> hissed Dorful, so faintly that Vimes wasn't sure he'd heard it. A finger scratched on the floor. Is it trying to write something, said Angua. Vimes pulled out his notebook, eased it under Dorful's hand, and gently pushed a pencil into the golem's fingers. They watched the hand as it wrote, a little jerkily, but still with the mechanical precision of a golem, eight words. Then it stopped. The pencil rolled away. The lights in Dorful's eyes dwindled and went out. Good grief, breathed Angua. They don't need words in their heads. We can rebuild him, said Carrot hoarsely. We have the pottery. Vimes stared at the words and then at what remained of Dorful. Mr. Vimes, said Carrot. Do it, said Vimes. Carrot blinked. Right now, Vimes said. He looked back at the scrawl in his book. Words in the heart can not be taken. And when you rebuild him, he said, when you rebuild him, give him a voice, understand? And get someone to look at your hand. A voice, sir? Do it. Yes, sir. Right. Vimes pulled himself together. Constable Angua and I will have a look around here. Off you go. He watched Carrot and the troll carry the remains out. OK, he said. We're looking for arsenic. Maybe there'll be some workshop somewhere. I shouldn't think they'd want to mix the poison candles up with the others. Cheery'll know what. Where is Corporal Littlebottom? Ah, uh, I don't think I can hold on much longer. They looked up. Cherie was hanging on the line of candles. How did you get up there? said Vimes. I sort of found myself going past, sir. Can't you just let go? You're not that high. Oh. A big trough of molten tallow was a few feet under her. Occasionally the surface went gloop. Uh, how hot would that be? Vimes hissed to Angua. Ever bitten hot jam? she said. Vimes raised his voice. Can't you swing yourself along, Corporal? 
All the wood's greasy, sir. Corporal Littlebottom, I order you not to fall off. Very good, sir. Vimes pulled off his jacket. Hang on to this. I'll see if I can climb up, he muttered. It won't work, said Angua. The thing's shaky enough as it is. I can feel my hand slipping, sir. Good grief, why didn't you call out earlier? Everyone seemed to be busy, sir. Turn around, sir, said Angua, undoing the buckles of her breastplate. Right now, please, and shut your eyes. Why? What? Right now, Oh, yes. Vimes heard Angua back away from the candle machine, her footsteps punctuated by the clang of falling armour. Then she started running, and the footsteps changed while she was running, and then he opened his eyes. The wolf sailed upwards in slow motion, caught the dwarf's shoulder in its jaws as Cherie's grip gave way, and then arched its body so that the wolf and dwarf hit the floor on the far side of the vat. Angua rolled, whimpering. Cherie scrambled to her feet. It's a werewolf! Angua rolled back and forth, pawing at her mouth. What's happened to it? said Cherie, her panic receding a little. It looks hurt. Where's Angua? Oh. Vimes glanced at the dwarf's torn leather shirt. You wear chainmail under your clothes, he said. Oh, it's my silver vest. But she knew about it, I told her. Vimes grabbed Angua's collar. She moved to bite him, and then caught his eye and turned her head away. Oh, she only bit the silver, said Cherie, distractedly. Angua pulled herself onto her feet, glared at them, and slunk off behind some crates. They heard her whimpering, which by degrees became a voice. Blasted dwarfs and their blasted vests. You all right, constable, said Vimes. Damn silver underwear. (sighs) Can you throw me my clothes, please? Vimes bundled up Angua's uniform, and eyes closed for decency's sake, handed it around the crates. No one told me she was a werewolf, Cherie moaned. Look at it like this, Corporal, said Vimes, as patiently as he could. If she hadn't been a werewolf, you would by now be the world's largest novelty candle, all right? Angua walked from behind the crates, rubbing her mouth. The skin around it looked too pink. It burned you, said Cherie. It'll heal, said Angua. You never said you were a werewolf. How would you have liked me to put it? Right, said Vimes. If that's all sorted out, ladies, I want this place searched. Understand? I've got some ointment, said Cherie meekly. Thank you. They found a bag in a cellar. There were several boxes of candles and a lot of dead rats. Igneous the Troll opened the door of his pottery a fraction. He'd intended the fraction to be no more than about one-sixteenth, but someone immediately pushed hard and turned it into rather more than one and three-quarters. "'Here, what's this?' he said, as Detritus and Carrot came in with the shell of Dorfel between them. "'You can't just break in here.' "'We ain't just breaking in,' said Detritus. "'This is an outrage,' said Igneous. "'You've got no right coming in here. You've got no reason.' Detritus let go of the golem and spun around. His hand shot out and caught Igneous around the throat. "'You see those statues of monolith over there? You see them?' he growled, twisting the other troll's head to face a row of troll religious statues on the other side of the warehouse. "'You want I should smash one open, see what they're filled with? Maybe find a reason?' Igneous's slitted eyes darted this way and that. He might have been hard of thinking, but he could feel a killing mood when it was in the air. 
No call for that. I always help the watch, he muttered. What this all about? Carrot laid out the golem on a table. Start, then, he said. Rebuild him. Use as much of the old clay as you can. Understand? How can it work when its lights are out? said Detritus, still puzzled by this mission of mercy. He said the clay remembers. The sergeant shrugged. And give him a tongue, said Carrot. Igneous looked shocked. I won't do that, he said. Everybody know it blasphemy if golems speak. Oh, yeah, said Detritus. He strode across the warehouse to the group of statues and glared at them. Then he said, whoops, here's me accidentally tripping up. Ooh, this is me grabbing a statue for support. Oh, their arm have come right off. Where can I put my face? And what is this white powder, what I sees here with my eyes accidentally spilling on the floor? He licked a finger and gingerly tasted the stuff. Slab, he growled, walking back to the trembling Igneous. You telling me about blasphemy, you sedimentary coprolith. You doing what Captain Carrot say right now, or you going out of here in a sack? This is police brutality, Igneous muttered. No, no, this is just police shouting, yelled Detritus. You want to try for brutality, it's okay with me. Igneous tried to appeal to Carrot. It not right. He got a badge. He's putting me in fear. He can't do this, he said. Carrot nodded. There was a glint in his eye that Igneous should have noticed. That's correct, he said. Sergeant Detritus? Sir, it's been a long day for all of us. You can go off duty. Yes, sir, said Detritus with considerable enthusiasm. He moved his badge and laid it down carefully. Then he started to struggle out of his armour. Look at it like this, said Carrot. It's not that we're making life, we're simply giving life a place to live. Igneous finally gave up. OK, OK, he muttered. I'm doing it, I'm doing it. He looked at the various lumps and shards that were all that remained of Dorful and rubbed the lichen on his chin. You got most of the bits, he said, professionalism edging resentment aside for a moment. I could glue him together with kiln cement. That'd do the trick if we bakes him overnight. Let's see, I reckon I got some over there. Detritus blinked at his finger, which was still white with the dust, and sidled over to Carrot. Did I just lick this? he said. Er, uh, yes, said Carrot. Thank goodness for that, said Detritus, blinking furiously. I'd hate to believe this room was really full of giant, hairy, spider-y, weeble, weeble sclop. He hit the floor, but happily. Even if I do it, you can't make it come alive again, muttered Igneous, returning to his bench. You won't find a priest who's going to write the words for in the head, not again. He'll make up his own words, said Carrot. And who's going to watch the oven, said Igneous. It's going to take till breakfast at least. I wasn't planning on doing anything for the rest of tonight, said Carrot, taking off his helmet. Vimes awoke around four o'clock. He'd gone to sleep at his desk. He hadn't meant to, but his body had just shut down. It wasn't the first time he'd opened bleary eyes there, but at least he wasn't lying in anything sticky. He focused on the report he'd half-written. His notebook was beside it, page after page of laborious scrawl, to remind him he was trying to understand a complex world by means of his simple mind. He yawned and looked out at the shank of the night. 
He didn't have any evidence, no real evidence at all. He'd had an interview with an almost incoherent Corporal Nobbs, who hadn't really seen anything. He had nothing that wouldn't burn away like the fog in the morning. All he'd got were a few suspicions and a lot of coincidences, leaning against one another like a house of cards with no card on the bottom. He peered at his notebook. Someone seemed to have been working hard. Oh, yes, it had been him. The events of last night jangled in his head. Why had he written all this stuff about a coat of arms? Oh, yes, yes! Ten minutes later, he was pushing open the door of the pottery. Warmth spilt out into the clammy air. He found Carrot and Detritus asleep on the floor on either side of the kiln. Damn. He needed someone he could trust, but he hadn't the heart to wake them. He'd pushed everyone very hard the last few days. Something tapped on the door of the kiln. Then the handle started to turn by itself. The door opened as far as it could go, and something half slid and half fell onto the floor. Vimes still wasn't properly awake. Exhaustion and the importunate ghosts of adrenaline sizzled around the edges of his consciousness. But he saw the burning man unfold himself and stand upright. His red-hot body gave little pings as it began to cool. Where it stood, the floor charred and smoked. The golem raised his head and looked around. You, said Vimes, pointing an unsteady finger, come with me. Yes, said Dorful. Dragon King of Arms stepped into his library. The dirt of the small high windows and the remnants of the fog made sure there was never more than greyness here, but a hundred candles yielded their soft light. He sat down at his desk, pulled a volume towards him and began to write. After a while he stopped and stared ahead of him. There was no sound but the occasional spluttering of a candle. Ah, I can smell you, Commander Vimes, he said. Did the heralds let you in? I found my own way, thank you, said Vimes, stepping out of the shadows. The vampire sniffed again. You came alone? Who should I have brought with me? And to what do I owe the pleasure, Sir Samuel? The pleasure is all mine. I'm going to arrest you said Vimes. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, for what, may I ask? Can I invite you to notice the arrow in this crossbow? said Vimes. No metal on the point, you'll see. It's wood all the way. How very considerate. <laughs> Dragon King of Arms twinkled at him. You still haven't told me what I'm accused of, however. To start with, complicity in the murders of Mrs. Flora Easy and the child William Easy. I am afraid those names mean nothing to me. Vimes's finger twitched on the bow's trigger. No, he said, breathing deeply. They probably don't. We are making other inquiries and there may be a number of additional matters. The fact that you were poisoning the patrician I consider a mitigating circumstance. You really intend to prefer charges? I'd prefer violence, said Vimes loudly. Charges is what I'm going to have to settle for. The vampire leaned back. I hear you've been working very hard, Commander, he said, so I will not... We've got the testimony of Mr. Carey, lied Vimes. The late Mr. Carey.
Dragon's expression changed by not one tiny tremor of muscle. I really do not know <laughs> what you're talking about, Sir Samuel. Only someone who could fly could have got into my office. I'm afraid you've lost me, sir. Mr. Carey was killed tonight, Vimes went on, by someone who could get out of an alley guarded at both ends, and I know a vampire was in his factory. I'm still gamely trying to understand you, Commander, said Dragon King of Arms. I know nothing about the death of Mr. Carey, and in any case there are a great many vampires in the city. I'm afraid your mm, aversion is well known. I don't like to see people treated like cattle, said Vimes. He stared briefly at the volumes piled in the room. And of course that's what you've always done, isn't it? These are the stock books of Ankh-Mor Pork. The crossbow swung back towards the vampire, who hadn't moved. Power over little people, that's what vampires want. The blood is just a way of keeping score. I wonder how much influence you've had over the years. A little. You are correct there, at least. A person of breeding, said Vimes. Good grief. Well, I think people wanted Vetinari out of the way, but not dead yet. Too many things had happened too fast if he were dead. Is Nobby really an earl? The evidence suggests so. But it's your evidence, right? You see, I don't think he's got noble blood in him. Nobby's as common as muck. It's one of his better points. I don't set any score by the ring. The amount of stuff his family's nicked, you could probably prove he's the Duke of Pseudopolis, the Seraph of Clatch, and the Dowager Duchess of Quirm. He pinched my cigar case last year, and I'm damn certain he's not me. No, I don't think Nobby is a knob, but I think he was convenient. It seemed to Vimes that Dragon was getting bigger, but perhaps it was only a trick of the candlelight. The light flickered as the candles hissed and popped. You made good use of me, eh? Vimes carried on. I'd been ducking out of appointments with you for weeks. I expect you were getting quite impatient. You were so surprised when I told you about Nobby, eh? Otherwise you'd have had to send for him or something very suspicious. But Commander Vimes discovered him. That looks good. Practically makes it official. And then I started thinking, who wants a king? Well, nearly everyone. It's built in. Kings make it better. Funny thing, isn't it? Even those people who owe everything to him don't like Vetinari. Ten years ago, most of the guild leaders were just a bunch of thugs, and now, well, they're still a bunch of thugs, to tell the truth, but Vetinari's given them the time and energy to decide they never needed him. And then young Carrot turns up with charisma writ all over him, and he's got a sword and a birthmark, and everyone gets a funny feeling, and dozens of buggers start going through the records and say, hey, looks like the king's come back. And then they watch him for a while and say... Shit, he really is decent and honest and fair and just. Just like in all the stories. Whoops, oh, if this lad gets on the throne, we could be in serious trouble. He might turn out to be one of them inconvenient kings from long ago who wanders around talking to the common people. You are in favour of the common people, said Dragon mildly. The common people, said Vimes. They're nothing special. They're no different from the rich and powerful, except they've got no money or power. But the law should be there to balance things up a bit, so I suppose I've got to be on their side. 
a man married to the richest woman in the city? Vimes shrugged. The watchman's helmet isn't like a crown. Even when you take it off, you're still wearing it. That's an interesting statement of position, Sir Samuel. I would be the first to admire the way you've come to terms with your family history, but don't move. Vimes shifted his grip on the crossbow. Anyway, carrot wouldn't do, but the news was getting around and someone said, right, let's have a king we can control. All the rumours say the king is a humble watchman, so let's find one. And they had a look and found that when it comes to humble, you can't beat knobby knobs. But <laughs> I think people weren't too sure. Killing Vetinari wasn't an option. As I said, too many things would happen too fast. But to just gently remove him so that he's there and not there at the same time, while everyone tried out the idea, that was a good wheeze. That's when someone got Mr Carey to make poisoned candles. He'd got a golem. Golems can't talk. No one would know. But it turned out to be a bit erratic. You seem to wish to involve me, said Dragon King of Arms. I know nothing about this man other than that he's a customer. Vimes strode across the room and pulled a piece of parchment from a board. You did him a coat of arms, he shouted. You even showed me when I was here. The butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, remember? There was no sound now from the hunched figure. When I first met you the other day, said Vimes, you made a point of showing me Arthur Carey's coat of arms. I thought it was a bit fishy at the time, but all that business with Nobby put it out of my mind. But I do remember it reminded me of the one for the Assassin's Guild. Vimes flourished the parchment. I looked and looked at it last night, and then I wound my sense of humour down ten notches and let it go out of focus and looked at the crest, the fish-shaped lamp. Lamp au poisson, it's called. A sort of bilingual play on words, perhaps? A lamp of poison? You've got to have a mind like old detritus to spot that one. And Fred Colon wondered why you'd left the motto in modern Ankian instead of putting it into the old language. And that made me wonder. So I sat up with the dictionary and worked it out, and you know, it would have read Ars Enixar est Candelam. Ars Enixar. That must have really cheered you up. You'd said who did it and how it was done, and gave it to the poor bugger to be proud of. Didn't matter that no one else would spot it, it made you feel good, because we ordinary mortals just aren't as clever as you, are we? He shook his head. Good grief, a coat of arms. Was that the bribe? Was that all it took? Dragon slumped in his chair. And then I wondered what was in it for you, continued Vimes. Oh, there's a lot of people involved, I expect, for the same old reasons, but you? Now, my wife breeds dragons. Out of interest, really. Is that what you do? A little hobby to allow the centuries to fly by? Or does blue blood taste sweeter? You know, I hope it was some reason like that, some decent, mad, selfish one. Uh, possibly, if someone were so inclined, and I certainly make no such admission, <laughs> they might simply be thinking of improving the race, said the shape in the shadows. Breeding for receding chins or bunny teeth, that sort of thing, 
said Vimes. Yes, I can see where it'd be more straightforward if you had the whole king business. All those courtly balls, all those little arrangements which see to it that the right kind of girl meets only the right kind of boy. You've had hundreds of years, right? And everyone consults you. You know where all the family trees are planted. But it's all got a bit messy under Vetinari, hasn't it? All the wrong people are getting to the top. I know how Sybil curses when people leave the pen gates open. It really messes up her breeding programme. You are wrong about Captain Carrot. <laughs> the city knows how to work around... Mm, difficult kings, but would it want a future king who might really be called Rex? Vimes looked blank. There was a sigh from the shadows. I am uh, referring to his apparently stable relationship with the werewolf. Vimes stared. Understanding eventually dawned. You think they'd have puppies. The genetics of werewolves are not straightforward, but the chance of such an outcome would be considered unacceptable. If someone were thinking on those lines. By gods. And that's it? The shadows were changing. Dragon was still slumped in the chair, but his outline seemed to be blurring. Whatever the motives, Mr. Vimes, there is no evidence other than supposition and coincidence, and your will to believe that links me with any attempt on Vetinari's life. The old vampire's head was sunk even further in his chest. The shadows of his shoulders seemed to be getting longer. It was sick involving the golems, said Vimes, watching the shadows. They could feel what their king was doing. Perhaps it wasn't very sane even to begin with, but it was all they had. Clay of their clay. The poor devils didn't have anything except their clay, and you bastards took away even that. Dragon leapt suddenly, bat wings unfolding. Vimes's wooden bolt clattered somewhere near the ceiling as he was borne down. "'You really thought you could arrest me with a piece of wood?' said Dragon, his hand around Vimes's neck. "'No,' Vimes croaked. "'I was more poetic than that. "'All I had to do was keep you talking. "'Feeling weak, are you? "'The bitter bit, you might say?' he grinned. "'The vampire looked puzzled and then turned his head "'and stared at the candles. "'You put something in the candles? "'Really?' We knew garlic would smell, but our alchemists reckoned that if you get holy water, soak the wicks, water evaporates, <laughs> just leaves holiness. The pressure was released. Dragon King of Arms sat back on his haunches. His face had changed, shaping itself forward, giving him an expression like a fox. Then he shook his head. No, he said, and this time it was his turn to grin. No, that's just words. That wouldn't work. Bet your unlife, rasped Vimes, rubbing his neck. A better way than old Carrie went, eh? Trying to trick me into an admission, Mr Vimes? Oh, I had that, said Vimes, when you looked straight at the candles. Really? <laughs> but who else saw me? said Dragon. From the shadows was a rumble like a distant thunderstorm. I did, said Dorful. 
The vampire looked from the golem to Vimes. You gave one of them a voice? he said. Yes, said Dorfel. He reached down and picked up the vampire in one hand. I could kill you, he said. This is an option available to me as a free-thinking individual, but I will not do so because I own myself and I have made a moral choice. Oh, gods, murmured Vimes under his breath. That's blasphemy, said the vampire. He gasped as Vimes shot him a glance like sunlight. That's what people say when the voiceless speak. Take him away, Dorval, put him in the palace dungeons. I could take no notice of that command, but am choosing to do so out of earned respect and social responsibility. Yes, yes, fine, said Vimes quickly. Dragon clawed at the golem. He might as well have kicked at a mountain. Undead or alive, you are coming with me, said Dorful. Is there no end to your crimes? You've made this thing a policeman, said the vampire, struggling as Dorful dragged him away. No, but it's an intriguing suggestion, don't you think, said Vimes. He was left alone in the thick, velvety gloom of the Royal College. And Vetinari will let him go, he reflected, because this is politics, because he's part of the way the city works. Besides, there's the matter of evidence. I've got enough to prove it to myself, but... But I'll know, he told himself. Oh, he'll be watched, and maybe one day when Vetinari is ready, a really good assassin will be sent with a wooden dagger soaked in garlic, and it'll all be done in the dark. That's how politics works in this city. It's a game of chess. Who cares if a few pawns die? I'll know, and I'll be the only one who knows deep down. His hands automatically patted his pockets for a cigar. It was hard enough to kill a vampire. You could stake them down and turn them into dust, and ten years later someone spills a drop of blood in the wrong place and guess who's back. They returned more times than raw broccoli. These were dangerous thoughts, he knew. They were the kind that crept up on a watchman when the chase was over and it was just you and him facing one another in that breathless little pinch between the crime and the punishment. And maybe a watchman had seen civilization with the skin ripped off one time too many and stopped acting like a watchman and started acting like a normal human being and realised that the click of the crossbow or the sweep of the sword would make all the world so clean. And you couldn't think like that, even about vampires. Even though they'd take the lives of other people because little lives don't matter, and what the hell can we take away from them? And you couldn't think like that because they gave you a sword and a badge, and that turned you into something else, and that had to mean there were some thoughts you couldn't think. Only crimes could take place in darkness. Punishment had to be done in the light. That was the job of a good watchman, Carrot always said, to light a candle in the dark. He found a cigar. Now his hands did the automatic search for matches. The volumes were piled up against the walls. The candlelight picked up gold lettering and the dull gleam of leather. There they were, the lineages, the books of heraldic minutiae, the who's whom of the centuries, the stock books of the city. People stood on them to look down. No matches. Quietly, in the dusty silence of the college, Vimes picked up a candelabrum and lit his cigar.
He took a few deep, luxuriant puffs and looked thoughtfully at the books. In his hand, the candles spluttered and flickered. The clock ticked its arrhythmic tock. It finally stuttered its way to one o'clock, and Vimes got up and went into the oblong office. Ah, Vimes, said Lord Vetinari, looking up. Yes, sir. Vimes had managed a few hours' sleep and had even attempted to shave. The patrician shuffled some papers on his desk. It seems to have been a very busy night last night. Yes, sir. Vimes stood to attention. All uniformed men knew in their very soul how to act in circumstances like this. You stared straight ahead, for one thing. It appears that I have Dragon King of Arms in the cells, said the patrician. Yes, sir. I've read your report. Somewhat tenuous evidence, I feel. Sir, one of your witnesses isn't even alive, Vimes. No, sir. Neither is the suspect, sir. Technically. He is, however, an important civic figure. An authority. Yes, sir. Lord Vetinari shuffled some of the papers on his desk. One of them was covered in sooty finger marks. It also appears... I have to commend you, Commander. Sir, the heralds at the Royal College of Arms, or at least at what remains of the Royal College of Arms, have sent me a note saying how bravely you worked last night. Sir, letting all those heraldic animals out of the pens and raising the alarm and so on. A tower of strength, they've called you. I gather most of the creatures are lodging with you at the present time? Yes, sir. Couldn't stand by and let them suffer, sir. We've got some empty pens, sir, and Keith and Roderick are doing well in the lake. They've taken a liking to Sybil, sir. Lord Vetinari coughed. Then he stared up at the ceiling for a while. So you, um, assisted in the fire? Yes, sir. Civic duty, sir. The fire was caused by a candlestick falling over, I understand. Possibly after your fight with Dragon King of Arms. So I believe, sir. And so it seems do the heralds. Anyone told Dragon King of Arms, said Vimes innocently. Yes. Took it well, did he? He screamed a lot, Vimes. In a heart-rending fashion, I am told, and I gather he uttered a number of threats against you, for some reason. I shall try to fit him into my busy schedule, sir. Bingly-bongly-beep, said a small, bright voice. Vimes slapped a hand against his pocket. Lord Vetinari fell silent for a moment. His fingers drummed softly on his desk. Many fine old manuscripts in that place, I believe. Without price, I'm told. Yes, sir. Certainly worthless, sir. Is it possible you misunderstood what I just said, Commander? Could be, sir. The provenances of many splendid old families went up in smoke, Commander. Of course, the heralds will do what they can, and the families themselves keep records, but frankly, I understand it's all going to be patchwork and guesswork. Extremely embarrassing. Are you smiling, Commander? It was probably a trick of the light, sir. Commander, I always used to consider that you had a definite anti-authoritarian streak in you. Sir? It seems that you have managed to retain this even though you are authority. Sir? That's practically zen. Sir? 
It seems I've only got to be unwell for a few days, and you managed to upset everyone of any importance in this city. Sir? Was that a yes, sir, or a no, sir, Sir Samuel? It was just a sir, sir. Lord Vetinari glanced at a piece of paper. Did you really punch the president of the Assassin's Guild? Yes, sir. Why? Didn't have a dagger, sir. Vetinari turned away abruptly. The Council of Churches, Temples, Sacred Groves and Big Ominous Rocks is demanding, uh, well, a number of things, several of them involving wild horses. Initially, however, they want me to sack you. Yes, sir. In all, I've had seventeen demands for your badge. Some want parts of your body attached. Why did you have to upset everybody? I suppose it's a knack, sir. But what could you hope to achieve? Well, sir, since you ask, we found out who murdered Father Tubalcheck and Mr Hopkinson, and who was poisoning you, sir. Vimes paused. Two out of three's not bad, sir. Vetinari riffled through the papers again. Workshop owners, assassins, priests, butchers. Hmm, you seem to have infuriated most of the leading figures in the city, he sighed. Really, it seems I have no choice. As of this week, I'm giving you a pay rise. Vimes blinked. Sir? Nothing unseemly. Ten dollars a month. And I expect they need a new dartboard in the watchhouse. They usually do, I recall. It's detritus, said Vimes, his mind unable to think of anything other than an honest reply. He tends to split them. Ah, yes. And talking of splits, Vimes, I wonder if your forensic genius could help me with a little conundrum we found this morning. The patrician stood up and headed for the stairs. Yes, sir, what is it? said Vimes, following him down. It's in the rat's chamber, Vimes. Really, sir? Vetinari pushed open the double doors. Voila, he said. That's some kind of musical instrument, isn't it, sir? No, Commander, the word means, What is that in the table? said the patrician sharply. Vimes looked into the room. There was no one there. The long mahogany table was bare, except for the axe. It had embedded itself in the wood very deeply, almost splitting the table along its entire length. Someone had walked up to the table and brought an axe down right in the centre as hard as they could, and then left it there, its handle pointing towards the ceiling. That's an axe, said Vimes. A Astonishing, said Lord Vetinari, and you barely had time to study it. Mm. Why is it there? I really couldn't say, sir. According to the servants, Sir Samuel, you came into the palace at six o'clock this morning. Oh, yes, sir, to check that the bastard was safely in a cell, sir, and to see that everything was all right, of course. You didn't come into this room? Vimes kept his gaze fixed somewhere on the horizon. Why should I have done that, sir? The patrician tapped the axe handle. It vibrated with a faint thumping noise. I believe some of the city council met in here this morning, or came in here at least. I'm told they hurried out very quickly, looking rather disturbed, I'm told. Maybe it was one of them that did it, sir. That is, of course, a possibility, said Lord Vetinari. I suppose you wouldn't be able to find one of your famous... "'Clues on the thing?' 
"'Shouldn't think so, sir. Not with all these fingerprints on it.' It would be a terrible thing, would it not, if people thought that they could take the law into their own hands. Oh, no fear of that, sir. I'm holding on tightly to it. Lord Vetinari plunked the axe again. Tell me, Sir Samuel, do you know the phrase quis custodiet ipsos custodes? It was an expression Carrot had occasionally used, but Vimes was not in the mood to admit anything. "'Can't say that I do, sir,' he said. "'Something about trifle, is it?' "'It means who guards the guards themselves,' Sir Samuel. "'Ah. Well, sir, who watches the watch, I wonder?' "'Oh, that's easy, sir. We watch one another.' "'Really? Mm, an intriguing point.' Lord Vetinari walked out of the room and back into the main hall, with Vimes trailing behind. However, he said, in order to keep the peace, the golem will have to be destroyed. Now, sir, allow me to repeat my instruction. No, sir. I'm sure I just gave you an order, Commander. I distinctly felt my lips move. No, sir. He's alive, sir. He's just made of clay, Vimes. Aren't we all, sir? According to them pamphlets, Constable Visit keeps handing out. Anyway, he thinks he's alive and that's good enough for me. The patrician waved a hand towards the stairs and his office full of paper. Nevertheless, Commander, I've had no less than nine missives from leading religious figures declaring that he is an abomination. Yes, sir. I've given that viewpoint a lot of thought, sir, and reached the following conclusion. Arseholes to the lot of them, sir. The patrician's hand covered his mouth for a moment. Mm, sir Samuel, you are a harsh negotiator. Surely you can give and take? Couldn't say, sir. Vimes walked to the main doors and pushed them open. Fog's lifted, sir, he said. There's a bit of cloud, but you can see all the way across the brass bridge. What will you use the golem for? Not use, sir. Employ. I thought it might be useful to keep the peace, sir. Mm, a watchman. Yes, sir, said Vimes. Haven't you heard, sir? Golems do all the mucky jobs. Vetinari watched him go and sighed. <sighs> he does so like a dramatic exit, he said. Yes, my lord said Drumnot, who had appeared noiselessly at his shoulder. "'Ah, Drumnot!' The patrician took a length of candle out of his pocket and handed it to his secretary. "'Dispose of this somewhere safely, will you?' "'Yes, my lord. "'It's the candle from the other night.' "'It's not burned down, my lord, but I, 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 I saw the candle end in the holder.' "'Oh, of course. I cut off enough to make a stub and let the wick burn for a moment.' I couldn't let our gallant policeman know I'd worked it out for myself, could I? Not when he was making such an effort and having so much fun being, well, being Vimes. I'm not completely heartless, you know. But, my, my lord, you could have sorted it out diplomatically. Instead, he went around upsetting things and making a lot of people very angry and, and afraid. Yes, mm, dear me. 
Ah, said Drumnot. Quite so, said the patrician. Do you wish me to have the table in the rat's chamber repaired? No, Drumnot. Leave the axe where it is. It will make a good conversation piece, I think. May I make an observation, my lord? Of course you may, said Vetinari, watching Vimes walk through the palace gates. The thought occurs, sir, uh, th th that if Commander Vimes did not exist, you would have had to invent him. You know, Drumnot, I rather think I did. Atheism is also a religious position, Dorful rumbled. No, it's not, said Constable Visit. Atheism is a denial of a god. Therefore it is a religious position, said Dorful. Indeed, a true atheist thinks of the gods constantly, albeit in terms of denial. Therefore atheism is a form of belief. If the atheist truly did not believe, he or she would not bother to deny. Did you read those pamphlets I gave you? said Visit suspiciously. Yes, many of them did not make sense, but I should like to read some more. Really? said Visit, his eyes gleamed. You really want more pamphlets? Yes, there is much in them that I would like to discuss. If you know some priests, I would enjoy disputation. All right, all right, said Sergeant Colon. So are you going to take the sodding oath or not, Dorful? Dorful held up a hand the size of a shovel. I, Dorful, pending the discovery of a deity whose existence withstands rational debate, swear by the temporary precepts of a self-derived moral system. You really want more pamphlets, said Constable Visit. Sergeant Colon rolled his eyes. Yes, said Dorful. Oh, my God, said Constable Visit and burst into tears. No one's ever asked for more pamphlets before. Colon turned when he realised Vimes was watching. It's no good, sir, he said. I've been trying to swear him in for half an hour, sir, and we keep ending up arguing about oaths and things. You willing to be a watchman, Dorful? said Vimes. Yes. Right. That's as good as I swear to be. Give him his badge, Fred. And this is for you, Dorful. It's a chit to say you're officially alive, just in case you run into any trouble. You know, with people. Thank you, said Dorful solemnly. If ever I feel I am not alive, I will take this out and read it. What are your duties, said Vimes, to serve the public trust... Protect the innocent and seriously prod buttock, sir, said Dorful. He learns fast, doesn't he, said Colon. I didn't even tell him the last one. People won't like it, said Nobby. It's not going to be popular. A golem as a watchman. What better work for one who loves freedom than the job of watchman? Law is the servant of freedom. Freedom without limits is just a word, said Dorful ponderously. You know, said Colin, if it doesn't work out, you could always get a job making fortune cookies. 
Funny thing, that, said Nobby. You never get bad fortunes in cookies. Ever noticed that? They never say stuff like, oh dear, things are going to be really bad. I mean, they never miss fortune cookies. Vimes lit a cigar and shook the match to put it out. That, Corporal, is because of one of the fundamental driving forces of the universe. What, like people who read fortune cookies are the lucky ones, said Nobby. No, because people who sell fortune cookies want to go on selling them. Come on, Constable Dorful, we're going for a walk. There's a lot of paperwork, sir, said Sergeant Colon. Tell Captain Carrot I said he should look at it, said Vimes from the doorway. He hasn't been in yet, sir. It'll keep. Right, sir. Colon went and sat behind his desk. It was a good place to be, he'd decided. There was absolutely no chance of finding any nature there. He'd had a rare conversation with Mrs. Colon this morning and made it clear that he was no longer interested in getting close to the soil because he'd been as close to the soil as it was possible to get, and the soil, it turned out, was just dirt. A good thick layer of cobblestones was, he decided, about as close as he wanted to get to nature. Also, nature tended to be squishy. I've got to go on duty, said Nobby. Captain Carrot wants me to do crime prevention in Peach Pie Street. How'd you do that, then? said Colon. Keep away, he said. You, Nobby, what's this about you not being a lord after all? said Colon cautiously. I think I got the sack, said Nobby. Bit of a relief, really. That Nobby grub isn't much and the drink is frankly piss. Lucky escape for you, then, said Colon. I mean, you won't have to go giving your clothes away to gardeners and so on. Yeah, wish I'd never told him about the damn ring, really. Would have saved you a lot of trouble, certainly, said Colon. Nobby spat on his badge and buffed it industriously with his sleeve. It's a good job I never told him about the tiara, the coronet and the three gold lockets, he said to himself. Where are we going? said Dorful, as Vimes strolled across the brass bridge. "'I thought I might break you in gently with some guard duty at the palace,' said Vimes. "'Ah, this is where my new friend Constable Visit is also on guard,' said Dorful. "'Splendid! I wish to ask you a question,' said the golem. "'Yes?' "'I smashed the treadmill, but the golems repaired it.' "'Why?' And I let the animals go, but they just milled around stupidly. Some of them even went back to the slaughter pens. Why? Welcome to the world, Constable Dorful. Is it frightening to be free? You said it. And say to people, throw off your chains and they make new chains for themselves? Seems to be a major human activity, yes. Dorful rumbled as he thought about this. Yes, he said eventually, I can see why. Freedom is like having the top of your head opened up. I'll have to take your word for that, constable. And you will pay me twice as much as other watchmen, said Dorful. Will I? Yes. I do not sleep. I can work constantly. I am a bargain. I do not need days off to bury my granny. How soon they learn, thought Vimes. He said, but you have holy days off, don't you? Either all days are holy or none are. I have not decided yet. Er, uh, what do you need money for, Dorful? 
I shall save up and purchase the golem Klutz, who labours in the pickle factory, and give him to himself. Then together we will earn and save for the golem Bobkiss of the coal merchant. The three of us will labour and buy the golem Schmata, who toils at the seven-dollar tailors in Peach Pie Street. Then the four of us will... Some people might decide to free their comrades by force and bloody revolution, said Vimes. Not that I'm suggesting that in any way, of course. No, that would be theft. We are bought and sold, so we will buy ourselves free by our labour. No one else to do it for us. We will do it by ourselves. Vimes smiled to himself. Probably no other species in the world would demand a receipt with their freedom. Some things you just couldn't change. Ah, he said, it seems some people want to talk to us. A crowd was approaching over the bridge in a mass of grey, black and saffron robes. It was made up of priests. They looked angry. As they pushed and shoved their way through the other citizens, several halos became interlocked. At their head was Hunon Ridcully, chief priest of Blind EO, and the closest thing Ankh Morpork had to a spokesman on religious issues. He spotted Vimes and hurried towards him, admonitory finger upraised. Now see here, Vimes, he began, and stopped. He glared at Dorful. Is this it? he said. If you mean the golem, this is him, said Vimes. Constable Dorful, your reverence. Dorful touched his helmet, respectively. How may we be of service, he said. You've done it this time, Vimes, said Ridcully, ignoring him. You've gone altogether too far by half. You made this thing speak, and it isn't even alive. We want it smashed. Blasphemy! People won't stand for it. Ridcully looked around at the other priests. I'm talking, he said. He turned back to Vimes. This comes under the heading of gross profanity and the worship of idols. I don't worship him. I'm just employing him, said Vimes, beginning to enjoy himself. And he's far from idle. He took a deep breath. And if it's gross profanity you're looking for... Excuse me, said Dorful. We're not listening to you. You're not even really alive, said a priest. Dorful nodded. This is fundamentally true, he said. See, he admits it. I suggest you take me and smash me and grind the bits into fragments and pound the fragments into powder and mill them again to the finest dust there can be, and I believe you will not find a single atom of life. True, let's do it. However, in order to test this fully, one of you must volunteer to undergo the same process. There was a silence. That's not fair, said a priest after a while. All anyone has to do is bake up your dust again and you'd be alive. There was more silence. Ridcully said, Is it only me or are we on tricky theological ground here? There was more silence. Another priest said, Is it true you've said you'll believe in any god whose existence can be proved by logical debate? Yes. Vimes had a feeling about the immediate future and took a few steps away from Dorful. But the gods plainly do exist, said a priest. It is not evident. A bolt of lightning lanced through the clouds and hit Dorfel's helmet. There was a sheet of flame and then a trickling noise. Dorfel's molten armour formed puddles around his white-hot feet. 
I don't call that much of an argument, said Dorfel calmly from somewhere in the clouds of smoke. It's tended to carry the audience, said Vimes, up till now. The chief priest of Blind Yeo turned to the other priests. All right, you fellows, there's no need for any of that. But Offler is a vengeful god, said a priest at the back of the crowd. Trigger happy is what he is, said Ridcully. Another lightning bolt zigzagged down, but bent at right angles a few feet above the chief priest's hat and earthed itself on a wooden hippo, which split. The chief priest smiled smugly and turned back to Dorful, who was making little clinking noises as he cooled. What you're saying is, you'll accept the existence of any god only if it can be proved by discussion. Yes, said Dorful. Ridcully rubbed his hands together. Not a problem, me old China, he said. Firstly, let us take the... Excuse me, said Dorful. He bent down and picked up his badge. The lightning had given it an interesting melted shape. What are you doing? said Ridcully. Somewhere a crime is happening, said Dorful. But when I am off duty, I will gladly dispute with the priest of the most worthy god. He turned and strode on across the bridge. Vimes nodded hurriedly at the shocked priests and ran after him. We took him and baked him in the fire, and he's turned out to be free, he thought. No words in the head except the ones he's chosen to put there himself, and he's not just an atheist, he's a ceramic atheist, fireproof. It looked like being a good day. Behind them, on the bridge, a fight was breaking out. Angua was packing, or rather she was failing to pack. The bundle couldn't be too heavy to carry by mouth. But a little money, she wouldn't have to buy much food, and a change of clothes, for those occasions when she might have to wear clothes, didn't have to take up much room. The boots are a problem, she said aloud. Maybe if you knot the laces together, you could carry them round your neck, said Cherie, who was sitting on the narrow bed. Good idea. Do you want these dresses? I've never got round to wearing them. I expect you could cut them down. Cherie took them in both arms. This one's silk. There's probably enough material for you to make two for one. "'Do you mind if I share them out? "'Only some of the lads, the, the ladies at the watch-house,' "'Cherie savoured the word ladies, "'are beginning to get a bit thoughtful.' "'Going to melt down their helmets, are they?' said Angua. "'Oh, no, but perhaps they could be made into a more attractive design. Um, "'Yes, um,' Cherie shifted uneasily. "'You've never actually eaten anyone, have you? "'You know, crunching bones and so on?' "'No.' I mean, I only heard my second cousin was eaten by werewolves. He was called Sven. Can't say I recall the name, said Angua. Cherie tried to grin. That's all right, then, she said. So you won't need that silver spoon in your pocket, said Angua. Cherie's mouth dropped open, and then the words tumbled over themselves. Uh, I, I, I don't know how it got there. Must have dropped in when I was um, washing up. I, I didn't mean... It doesn't worry me, honestly. I'm used to it. But I didn't think you'd... Look, don't get the wrong idea. It's not a case of not wanting to, said Angua. It's a case of wanting to and not doing it. You don't really have to go, do you? Oh, I don't know if I can take the watch seriously, and sometimes I think Carrot's working up to ask me... Well, it'd never work out. It's the way he just assumes everything, you know. So it's best to go now, Angua lied. Won't Carrot try and stop you? Yes, but there's nothing he can say. He'll be upset. Yes, said Angua briskly, throwing another dress on the bed, and then he'll get over it. 
Rolf Thighbite has asked me out, said Cherie shyly, looking at the floor, and I'm almost certain he's male. Glad to hear it. Cherie stood up. I'll walk with you as far as the watch house. I've got to go on duty. They were halfway along Elm Street before they saw Carrot, head and shoulders above the crowd. Looks like he was coming to see you, said Cherie. Uh, shall I go away? Too late. Ah, oh, good morning, Corporal Miss Littlebottom, said Carrot cheerfully. Hello, Angua. I was just coming to see you, but I had to write my letter home first, of course. He took off his helmet and smoothed back his hair. Er, uh, he began. I know what you're going to ask, said Angua. You do? I know you've been thinking about it. You knew I was wondering about going. It was obvious, was it? And the answer's no. I wish it could be yes. Carrot looked astonished. It never occurred to me that you'd say no, he said. I mean, why should you? Good grief, you amaze me, she said. You really do. I thought it would be something you'd want to do, said Carrot. He sighed. Oh, well, doesn't matter, really. Angua felt that a leg had been kicked away. It doesn't matter, she said. I mean, yes, it'd have been nice, but I won't lose any sleep over it. You won't? Well, no, obviously not. You've got other things you want to do. That's fine. I just thought you might enjoy it. I'll do it by myself. What? How can... Angua stopped. What are you talking about, Carrot? The Dwarf Bread Museum. I promised Mr Hopkinson's sister that I'd tidy it up. You know, get it sorted out. She's not very well off, and I thought it could raise some money. Just between you and me, there's several exhibits in there that could be better presented. <laughs> but I'm afraid Mr Hopkinson was rather set in his ways. I'm sure there's a lot of dwarfs in the city that'd flock there if they knew about it. And, of course, there's a lot of youngsters that ought to learn more about their proud heritage. A good dusting and a lick of paint would make all the difference, I'm sure, especially on the older loaves. I don't mind giving up a few days off. I just thought it might cheer you up. But I appreciate that bread isn't everyone's cup of tea. Angua stared at him. It was the stare that Carrot so often attracted. It roamed every feature of his face, looking for the tiniest clue that he was making some kind of a joke. Some long, deep joke at the expense of everyone else. Every sinew in her body knew that he must be, but there was not a clue, not a twitch to prove it. Yes, she said weakly, still searching his face. I expect it could be a little gold mine. Museums have got to be a whole lot more interesting these days, and you know there's a whole gorilla crumpet assortment he hasn't even catalogued, said Carrot, and some early examples of defensive bagels. Gosh, said Angua, hey, why don't we paint a big sign saying something like The Dwarf Bread Experience? Uh, that probably wouldn't work for dwarfs, said Carrot, oblivious to sarcasm. A dwarf bread experience tends to be short but I can see it certainly caught your imagination. I'll have to go, Angua thought as they strolled on down the street. Sooner or later, he'll see that it can't really work out, werewolves and humans. We've both got too much to lose. Sooner or later, I'll have to leave him. But, for one day at a time, let it be tomorrow. Want the dresses back? said Cherie, behind her. Maybe one or two, said Angua.
That is the end of Feet of Clay. It was written by Terry Pratchett and read by Nigel Planer. <laughs>